Chapter One of Ticonderoga A Story of Early Frontier Life in the Mohawk Valley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ticonderoga A Story of Early Frontier Life in the Mohawk Valley by G. P. R. James. Chapter One the house was a neat though a lowly one it bore traces of newness for the bark on the trunks which supported the little veranda had not yet mouldered away nevertheless it was not built by the owner's own hands for when he came there he had much to learn in the rougher arts of life but with a carpenter from a village some nine miles off he had aided to raise the building and directed the construction by his own taste the result was satisfactory to him and what was more in his eyes was satisfactory to the two whom he loved best at least it seemed satisfactory to them although those who knew them even not so well as he did might have doubted and yet loved them all the better the door of the house was open and custom admitted every visitor freely whatever was his errand it was a strange state of society that in which men though taught by daily experience the precaution was necessary, took none. They held themselves occasionally ready to repel open assault, which was rare, and neglected every safeguard against insidious attack, which was much more common. It was the custom of the few who visited that secluded spot to enter without ceremony, and to search in any or every room in the house for someone of the inhabitants, but on this occasion the horse that came up the road stopped at the gate of the little fence, and the traveller, whoever he was, when he reached the door after dismounting, knocked with his whip before he entered. The master of the house rose and went to the door. He was somewhat impatient of ceremony, but the aspect and demeanour of his visitor were not of a kind to nourish any angry feeling. He was a young and very handsome man, probably not more than thirty years of age, sinewy and well-formed in person with a noble and commanding countenance a broad high brow and a keen but tranquil eye his manner was courteous but grave and he said without waiting to have his errand asked i know not sir whether i shall intrude upon you too far in asking hospitality for the night but the sun is going down and i was told by a lad whom i met in the woods just now that there is no other house for ten miles farther and to say the truth i am very ignorant of the way come in said the master of the cottage we never refuse to receive a visitor here and indeed have sometimes to accommodate more than the house will well hold we are alone however now and you will not have to put up with the inconveniences which our guests are sometimes obliged to encounter stay i will order your horse to be taken care of Thus saying, he advanced a step or two beyond the door and called in a loud voice for someone whom he named Agrippa. He had to shout more than once, however, before a negro appeared, blind in one eye and somewhat lame withal, but yet apparently both active and intelligent. The necessary orders were soon given, and in a moment after the traveller was seated with his host in the little parlour of the cottage. The manner of the latter could not be called cordial, though it was polite and courteous. The other seemed to feel it in some degree, and a certain stateliness appeared in his demeanour, which was not likely to warm his host into greater familiarity. 
but suddenly the chilly atmosphere of the room was warmed in a moment and a chain of sympathy established between the two by the presence of youth a boy of sixteen and a girl a little more than a year older entered with gay and sunshiny looks and the cloud was dispelled in a moment my daughter edith my son walter said the master of the house addressing the stranger as the two young people bounded in and then he added with a slight inclination of the head it was an ancient and honourable custom in scotland when that country was almost as uncivilised as this and possessed all the uncivilised virtues never to inquire the name of a guest and therefore i cannot introduce you to my children but doubtless they will soon acknowledge you as their nameless friend i am a friend of one of them already answered the stranger holding out his hand to the lad this is the young gentleman who told me that i should find the only house within ten miles about this spot and his father willing to receive me though he did not say that i should find a gem in the wilderness and a gentleman in these wild woods it has been a foolish fancy perhaps said the master of the house to carry almost into the midst of savage life some remnants of civilization we keep the portraits of dead friends a lock of hair a trinket a garment of the loved and departed the habits and the ornaments of another state of society are to me like those friends and i long to have some of their relics near me oh my dear father said edith seating herself by him and leaning her head upon his bosom without timidity or restraint you could never do without them i remember when we were coming hither now three years ago that you talked a great deal of free unshackled existence but i knew quite well even then that you could not be content till you had subdued the rough things around you to a more refined state what made you think so edith asked her father looking down at her with a smile because you never could bear the parson of the parish drinking punch and smoking tobacco pipes answered the beautiful girl with a laugh and i was quite sure that it was not more savage life you sought but greater refinement oh yes my father added the lad and you often said when we were in england that the red indian had much more of the real gentleman in him than many appear dreams dreams said their father with a melancholy smile and then turning to the stranger he added you see sir how keenly our weaknesses are read by even children but come edith our friend must be hungry with his long ride see and hasten the supper our habits are primeval here sir like our woods we follow the sun to bed and wake with him in the morning they are good habits answered the stranger and such as i am accustomed to follow much myself but do not i pray you hasten your supper for me i am anything but a slave of times and seasons i can fast long and fare scantily without inconvenience and yet you are an englishman answered the master of the house gravely a soldier or i mistake a man of station i am sure though all three would generally infer as the world goes at this present time a fondness for luxurious ease and an indulgence of all the appetites a slight flush came to his young companion's cheek and the other hastened to add believe me i meant nothing discourteous i spoke of the englishman the soldier and the man of rank and station generally not of yourself i see it is far otherwise with you you hit hard my good friend replied the stranger and there is some truth in what you say but perhaps i have seen as many lands as you and i boldly venture to pronounce that the fault is in the age not in the nation the profession or the class 
As he spoke, he rose, walked thoughtfully to the window, and gazed out for a moment or two in silence, and then, turning round, he said, addressing his host's son, "'How beautifully the setting sun shines down yonder glade in the forest, pouring, as it were, in its golden mist through the needle foliage of the pines. Runs there a road down there?' The boy answered in the affirmative, and, drawing close to the stranger's side, pointed out to him, by the undulation of the ground and the gaps in the tree-tops, the wavy line that the road followed down the side of the gentle hill, saying, "'By a white oak and a great hemlock tree there is a footpath to the left. At a clump of large cedars on the edge of the swamp the road forks out to the right and left, one leading eastward towards the river, and one out westward to the hunting-grounds.' The stranger seemed to listen to him with pleasure, often turning his eyes to the lad's face as he spoke, rather than to the landscape to which he pointed and when he had done he laid his hand on his shoulder, saying, "'I wish I had such a guide as you, Walter, for my onward journey.' "'Will it be far?' asked the youth. "'Good faith, I cannot well tell,' answered the other. "'It may be as far as Montreal, or even to Quebec, if I get not satisfaction soon.' "'I could not guide you as far as that,' replied the boy. "'But I know every step towards the lakes, as well as an Indian.' "'with whom he is very fond of consorting,' said his father, with a smile. But before the conversation could proceed farther, an elderly, respectable woman-servant entered the room and announced that supper was on the table. Edith had not returned, but they found her in a large, oblong chamber, to which the master of the house led the way. There was a long table in the midst, and four wooden chairs arranged round one end, over which a snowy tablecloth was spread. The rest of the table was bare, but there were a number of other seats and two or three benches in the room, while at equal distances on either side, touching the walls, lay a number of bear and buffalo skins, as if spread out for beds. The eye of the stranger glanced over them as he entered, but his host replied to his thoughts with a smile. "'We will lodge you somewhat better than that, sir. We have just now more than one room vacant.' "'But you must know there is no such thing as privacy in this land, "'and when we have any invasion of our Indian friends, "'those skins make them supremely happy. "'I often smile to think how a red man would feel in Holland sheets. "'I tried it once, but it did not succeed. "'He pulled the blankets off the bed and slept upon the floor. "'Seated at the table, the conversation turned to many subjects, "'general, of course, but yet personally interesting "'to both the elder members of the party.' More than an hour was beguiled at the table, a longer period than ordinary, and then the bright purple hues which spread over the eastern wall of the room, opposite the windows, told that the autumnal sun had reached the horizon. The master of the house rose to lead the way into another room again, but ere he moved from the table another figure was added to the group around it, though the foot was so noiseless that no one heard its entrance into the chamber. The person who had joined the little party was a man of middle age, of a tall, commanding figure, upright and dignified carriage, and fine but somewhat strongly marked features. The expression of his countenance was grave and noble, but yet there was a certain strangeness in it, a touch of wildness, perhaps I might call it, very difficult to define. It was not in the eyes, for they were good, calm and steadfast, gazing straight at any object of contemplation, and fixed full upon the face of any one he addressed. It was not in the lips, for, except when speaking, they were firm and motionless, 
perhaps it was in the eyebrow which thick and strongly marked was occasionally suddenly raised or depressed without apparent cause his dress was very strange he was evidently of european blood although his skin was embrowned by much exposure to sun and weather but yet he wore not altogether the european costume the garb of the american backwoodsman or that of the indian there was a mixture of all which gave him a wild and fantastic appearance his coat was evidently english and had straps of gold lace upon the shoulders his knee-breeches and high-riding boots would have looked english also had not the latter been destitute of soles properly so called for they were made somewhat like a stocking and the part beneath the foot was of the same leather as the rest over his shoulder was a belt of rattlesnake skin and round his waist a sort of girdle formed from the claws of the bear from which depended a string of wampum while two or three knives and a small tomahawk appeared on either side no other weapons had he whatever but under his left arm hung a common powder flask made of cow's horn and beside it a sort of wallet such as trappers commonly used for carrying their little store of indian corn a round fur cap of bearskin without any ornament whatever completed his habiliments it would seem that in that house he was well known for its master instantly held forth his hand to him and the young people sprang forward and greeted him warmly a full minute elapsed before he spoke but nobody uttered a word till he did so all seeming to understand his habits well mr prevost he said at length i have been a stranger to your wigwam for some time how art thou walter not a man yet in spite of all thou canst do Edith, my sweet lady, time deals differently with thee from thy brother. He makes thee woman against thy will. And turning suddenly to the stranger, he said, Sir, I am glad to see you. Were you ever at Kilmansegi? Once, replied the stranger laconically. Then we will confer presently, replied the newcomer. How have you been this many a day, Mr. Prevost? You must give me food, for I have ridden far. I will have that bearskin, too, for my night's lodging-place, if it be not pre-engaged. No, not that one, the next, for I ever count upon your courtesy. There was something extremely stately and dignified in his whole tone, and with frank straightforwardness, but without any indecorous haste, he seated himself at the table, drew toward him a large dish of cold meat, and while Edith and her brother hastened to supply him with everything else he needed, proceeded to help himself liberally to what was within his reach not a word more did he speak for several minutes while mr prevost and his guest stood looking on in silence and the two young people attended the newcomer at the table as soon as he had done he rose abruptly and then looking first to mr prevost and next to the stranger said now gentlemen if you please we will to council the stranger hesitated, and Mr. Prevost answered, with a smile, "'I am not of the initiated, Sir William, but I and the children will leave you with my guest, whom you seem to know, but of whose name and station I am ignorant.' "'Stay, stay,' replied the other to whom he spoke. "'We shall need not only your advice, but your concurrence. This gentleman I will answer for, as a faithful and loyal subject of His Majesty King George.' he has been treated with that hardest of all treatments neglect but his is a spirit in which not even neglect can drown out loyalty to his king 
and love to his country moreover i may say that the neglect which he has met with has proceeded from a deficiency in his own nature god unfortunately did not make him a grumbler or he would have been a peer long ago the almighty endowed him with all the qualities that could benefit his fellow-creatures but denied him those which were necessary to advance himself others have wondered that he never met with honours or distinction or reward i wonder not at all for he is neither a charlatan nor a coxcomb nor a pertinacious beggar he cannot stoop to slabber the hand of power nor lick the spittle of the man in office how can such a man have advancement it is contrary to the course of things of this world but he has loved his fellow-men and so will he love them as he has served his country so will he serve it as he has sought honour and truth more than promotion honour and truth will be his reward alas that it should be the only one but when he dies if he dies unrecompensed it will not be unregretted or unvenerated he must be of our council mr prevost has stood by in silence with his eyes bent upon the ground but edith sprang forward and caught sir william johnson's hand as he ended the praises of her father and bending her head with exquisite grace pressed her lips upon it her brother seemed inclined to linger for a moment but saying come walter she glided out of the room and the young lad following closed the door behind him End of chapter one